I V M. The crowd sounds worried, hysterical almost. Now and then a wail erupts, only to be quickly hushed. They're all looking at something hidden far within the grove of sal trees, trying to peek over the shoulders of the hundreds, if not thousands, of people who have gathered here tonight. Let's try to squeeze through them and see what they're trying to look at in the darkness within the trees. Sorry, madam. To the side now, little one. Just passing through, sir. As we move, we see faces from all over the Gangetic Plains. People tall and short, thin and chunky. Faces worried, distracted, curious. Faces the color of ebony, of ivory, of burnished copper. Ornaments of gold, of wood, of ivory. Makeup of dots, of circles, of lines. Turbans of coarse cloth and fine dyed textiles. People who wear no more than loincloths, people in the robes of the Buddhist Sangha, people wearing splendid jewels and finely crafted costumes. Some are in the fashion of Magadha, some Koshala, some Lichavi, some Shakya, some even from distant Avanti. But most are in the fashion of the Malla Ganasangha, where we are today. Carpenters, cobblers, tailors, water carriers, sanitation workers, priests, and aristocrats from the nearby town of Kushinagara, the city of joy. But joy is not an expression we see in this crowd tonight. The light of thousands of stars trickles down through the towering trees, reflecting in the eyes and tears of the people gathered here. As we continue to push through the crowd, a deep silence descends upon us. We are suddenly surrounded by dozens of monks, kneeling, heads bowed. A wide shaft of moonlight shines through a clearing in the canopy, illuminating a figure lying peacefully on his side, one arm under his head, right foot on his left. Sal blossoms are scattered around him like a halo around a fading sun. The man once known as Siddhartha Gautama, looking very old and frail as he lies in the gentle light, does not have much time left in this world. A solitary figure kneels next to him, head bowed. We've seen him before. This is Gautama's cousin and attendant, Ananda. Ananda is crying quietly. Gautama has given him many instructions on this final day they have together. Up almost to his last breath, the master was still teaching, planning, making arrangements so that the Sangha would survive after he is gone. Gautama slowly opens his mouth and Ananda gasps, leaning forward, straining to catch every word. He tries to give him a cup of water, but Gautama gestures it away. The monks surrounding them lean forward. Silence spreads through the grove. It seems that even the birds and animals pause. Now, monks, 
I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. Gautama closes his eyes, a slow smile spreading across his face for the last time. His breathing, slow and gentle, grows more and more expansive. And then it stops. For a few seconds, there is no sound except the rustling of leaves in the trees, the falling of flowers to the forest floor, decaying now as this body is. The man who transformed the history of the world through nearly 50 years of teaching, of moving the hearts and minds of thousands, is dead. Then the wailing and the screaming, the tearing of hair, the beating of chess begins. It will continue until the core light of dawn, when the sun will rise on a Buddhist Sangha without an undisputed leader. With the dawn, there will be demands from kings and lords. The politics will begin anew. The senior monks, tears in their eyes, are calling for quiet and asking people not to grieve. As the Buddha said, it is in the nature of all things to decay. But Ananda, Buddha's cousin, Buddha's confidant, Buddha's dearest companion, the butt of Buddha's jokes, the final person whom Buddha praised in his life, doesn't care about all that. He doesn't care about tomorrow. Tonight, Ananda kneels next to a man that he loved and cries quietly as the wailing of the crowd grows louder and louder. Flocks of startled birds rise up from the Sal grove like a crowd of gods bearing Siddhartha Gautama up to the heavens and the worlds beyond. My name is Anirudh Kanisati. Welcome to Echoes of India, a history podcast. The death of Siddhartha Gautama is among the most significant events of the early historic period. Today, in much of the world, his legacy is totally overshadowed by that of random Greek philosophers who thought that human beings were featherless bipeds. But within his own time, his death had world-changing impacts. To this day, depictions of the moment that we've just witnessed, the Mahaparinibbana, or the Great Extinguishing, the death of Siddhartha Gautama, can be found across the vast Buddhist world. And very rapidly after this moment, the ideas and practices that he preached would undergo a series of major changes, including the compilation of canonical versions of Gautama's teachings and the establishments of forms of worship still followed today. These, in turn, would make it ideal for its reformulation as perhaps India's first imperial religion, only a few centuries after Gautama's death. Much has been said about immortality and the sometimes ridiculous lengths that we humans go to try and achieve it. Our bodies inevitably decay, something that I can say from personal experience in the two years since season two of Echoes dropped. Memories of who we are fade and warp. Those who remember who we were eventually pass from this world, and we vanish into the ocean of forgotten people from whom we briefly stood apart. But sometimes the ripples we leave in the lives we've touched take on a life of their own. And so we do achieve some kind of immortality, 
but it never really reflects who we were with all of our flaws and brilliances. This second life that we lead reveals much more about those telling stories of us than they ever do about us. There is no immortality in this world. All things must decay. The scene we saw a few minutes ago is only a slightly dramatized version of the Buddha's death presented in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta of the Digha Nikaya, part of the Pali canon of Theravada Buddhism, mostly followed today in Sri Lanka. The words that we heard Buddha say are recorded to have been his last. But as with all human lives, the depiction of his death that survives to us is a distorted ripple of what might actually have happened. There are actually dozens of different accounts of this event in its aftermath, recorded in a dizzying array of texts composed and recomposed and transmitted to us by Buddhist schools across South and East Asia, across the last 2000 years, constantly modified based on social, political and doctrinal evolutions. All this hints at how important and loaded with meaning Buddha's death was, not only to his own followers, but to the generations of followers who were influenced by the Sangha that took shape in the aftermath of his death. Rewriting history to suit our personal ambitions and views is not new to humanity at all. So, why are we looking at this Pali version of Buddha's death instead of, say, a version translated from Sanskrit into Chinese? Pali wasn't even probably the language that Buddha actually preached in. In real life, he moved around the geographic area corresponding to parts of Uttar Pradesh, Bihar and the foothills of Nepal, where a number of dialects of what we call the Middle Indo-Aryan languages were spoken. This was in keeping with his attempt to bring his formulation of Dhamma, his social philosophy, to as many people as he possibly could. Pali would emerge as a kind of standardized language a couple of hundred years later, used to impose a single overarching language of prestige onto the many differing versions of Buddha's saying that were being transmitted orally. We'll come back to that in future episodes, though. Now, the Pali Canon is probably one of the closest recordings we have of the Mahaparinibbana of Siddhartha Gautama, and it's very fascinating because it allows us to see somewhat hazily the last days of this brilliant, transformative person. It allows us to guess at the issues that he struggled with in his waning years and what was considered so important that it needed to be preserved or retconned by later Buddhists. In the process of doing this, we will gradually be introduced to the early Indian kingdom that casts perhaps the longest shadow of all its contemporaries, and that will dominate much of the next few episodes of this season. Magadha the Mighty, the polity that would give rise to India's first true empire. So, what were the compilers of the Pali Canon obsessed with? The first is an individual whom we met in the previous episode, Buddha's cousin and brother-in-law, Devadatta. Late in Buddha's life, according to the Chulavagga, Devadatta became the first schismatic in the history of this religious tradition. He was a renowned teacher and ascetic in his own right, with his own following, and he seems to have promoted a much more rigorous version of monasticism than Gautama. As a Shakya and a close relative of the aging Buddha, he seems to have emerged as a major contender for the leadership of the Sangha. All these culminated, according to the Chulavagga, in an incident where the Buddha was preaching at the bamboo grove on the outskirts of Rajagaha, the capital of Magadha, which we saw in the last episode. From Book 7 of the Chulavagga
Now at that time, the Lord was sitting down, teaching Dhamma, surrounded by a large company, by a company which included the King Bimbisara. Then Devdat, rising from his seat, having arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, having saluted the Lord with joined palms, spoke thus to the Lord. Lord, you are now old, worn, stricken in years. You have lived your span and are at the close of your life. May you now be content to live devoted to abiding in ease here and now. Hand over the order of monks to me. It is I who will lead the order of monks. Thrice Devdat said this, and thrice he was refused. And then the Lord said, I, Devadatta, would not hand over the order of monks even to Shariputta and Mogalana. How then could I to you, a wretched one, to be vomited like spittle? Buddha then orders the Sangha to pass an act of information disavowing all ties to Devadatta. Senior monks, led by the venerable elder Shariputta, spread out through Rajagaha spreading this news. Devadatta then went to the son of King Bimbisaro of Magadha, an ambitious young man known as Ajata Shattu, and the two forced the king to step down from the throne. Like a pair of cartoon villains, the Chulavagga then depicts them trying to assassinate Buddha by sending a swordsman and a rogue elephant after him, and finally trying to drop a boulder on him. Finally, Wiley Devadatta convinces a bunch of newly ordained monks to follow him and turns public opinion against the Buddha by claiming that he promotes a very comfortable life. The Buddha allowed monks the freedom to either live in forests or settlements and allowed them to beg or eat with generous householders, allowed them to wear rags or to accept donated robes, allowed them to live under trees and allowed them to eat meat provided that the meat wasn't killed specifically for them. Devadatta disavowed all these things and thus claimed to be a more serious ascetic than the Buddha himself. Finally, though he leaves the Sangha with 500 followers, they are all won back by the elders Shariputta and Moggallana, and Wiley Coyote, I mean Devadatta, becomes so furious that he spits blood and dies. Did any of this actually happen? I don't really know, but it sounds so over the top that it's very hard to believe it's accurate. Perhaps Devadatta did indeed have a disagreement with his cousin over monastic discipline. Perhaps his ascetic ideas did have appeal given the way that people thought about renunciation, which we saw in episode 4. But the Chulavagga is a much later text. It could be that its composers were threatened with a split in their Sangha, perhaps over the same issues of monastic discipline that Devadatta raised. So of course they would try to paint him as a buffoon and put their words in Buddha's mouth. But it's very interesting that they mention Prince Ajatashatu of Magadha, the ambitious son of the ambitious King Bimbisara. Ajatashatu is widely believed to have killed his father to come to power, and Devadatta is shown as being responsible for this, an act of betrayal on par with his rebellion against his venerable cousin, who in many ways played the role of a father to him. The kingdom of Magadha, late in Buddha's life when his movement has become a major social and political force, seems to have been stirring up the affairs of the Sangha from this very early date. Now, if there's even a grain of truth in Devadatta's schism, and I think there is, 
Buddha's grip over the Sangha was faltering towards his last days. I believe it's true because of how Buddha behaves in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. He restlessly moves from place to place, preaching, teaching till the last moment, trying to ensure that his Dhamma will somehow survive. The Sutta also reveals an awareness of the rising power of the kingdom of Magadha and seems quite interested in connecting the Buddha, perhaps retroactively, with it. In a discussion with a Brahmin called Vasakara, the Buddha of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta claims to have taught seven principles to the members of the Vajji or Vridji confederacy, a major Ganasangha or republic with 6,000 rajas. According to Buddha, as long as these principles are adhered to, the Ganasangha will never fall to King Ajatashattu of Magadha. Buddha then explains a number of similar principles to his monks and then leaves for the fortified town of Pataligama, a new settlement being established by King Ajatashattu as a military base to protect against the Vajjians. At Pataligama, Buddha went to a rest house, washed his feet and sat down facing east, with his back resting on the central pillar, his monks sitting behind him. The householders or grahasthas of the town came there, washed their feet and sat down facing him. Householders, there are five perils of bad morality. What are they? The loss of property through neglect of one's affairs. The loss of reputation due to misconduct. And diffidence when approaching an assembly, whether of Kshatriyas, Brahmins, householders or ascetics. One dies confused. And after death, one returns in a bad fate, in suffering or in hell. But here are the advantages of good morality. The gaining of wealth through careful attention of one's affairs. A good reputation. Confidence and assurance in assemblies. And dying unconfused. After death, one of good morality returns in a good place, in a heavenly world. Do you see what he's doing here? Buddha is appealing to the wealthy citizens of this new town. He says nothing about renunciation because he knows that it won't appeal to them. Instead, he focuses on morality and good behavior because everyone, even a billionaire, likes to pretend they're doing good after all. It's in line with Buddha's social theory of karma as well. He then makes a prophecy. He claims that he can see thousands of gods gathering in the heavens and that the town of Pataligama will one day be the chief city of all the Gangetic Plains, the Aryadesha as he calls it. It will scatter his seeds far and wide, he says. He prophesizes that it will face three perils, fire, water and internal dissension. Did the historic Buddha really visit Pataligama? Probably. But did he really say all these things about it? Did he really know that Pataligama would come to be known as Pataliputra, the capital of the mighty empire of the Mauryas and the Guptas many centuries after? Did he really see it bending the subcontinent to its might before vanishing under the waters of the Ganga to slumber quietly between the modern city of Patna and Bihar? Almost certainly not. But the composers of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, living in a very different world, 
did know some of these things and they wanted Buddha to be associated with the power of Magadha and specifically the war that made Magadha the dominant power of the eastern Gangetic plains Ajata Shatru's campaigns against the Vajjis again just as we did with the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad four episodes and a few centuries ago we are able to see the minds of a text composers bending memories of what may have been real people to their will and their purposes but amid all these undoubtedly later additions there's also some genuinely fascinating stuff in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta that might very well date from the Buddha's life he seems to have driven himself almost to exhaustion traveling from place to place trying to spread the dhamma as far as he could before he died the list of places he's supposed to have traveled to include the important cities of Pataligama and Rajagaha and Magadha Vishali in the Vajji Confederacy and the minor towns or villages of Kotigama, Nadika, Bandagama, Hattigama, Ambagama, Jambugama and Bhoganagara. At Bhoganagara he explains how monks will be able to preserve the truest version of his teaching. Monks listen. Pay close attention and I will speak. Suppose a monk were to say friends i have heard and received this from the lord's own lips this is the dhamma this is the discipline this is the master's teaching then you should neither approve nor disapprove at first you should carefully note his words and compare them with the sutras and review them in the light of the vinaya the discipline if they do not conform the conclusion must be assuredly this is not the word of the buddha and it has been wrongly understood by the monk and the matter is to be rejected but if they do conform the conclusion must be assuredly this is the word of the buddha and it has been rightly understood by this monk A while at Vaishali the Buddha stayed at a grove donated to the Sangha by a wealthy and attractive courtesan residing in the Vajji Confederacy by the name of Ambapali partly due to historical revisionism by Buddhist monks the Pali canon is rather quiet about Ambapali oral legends claim that she was so sexy that Ajata Shatru of Magadha was actually fighting with the Vajjis because he was in love with her Now I am as much of a romantic as anyone else but I have a hard time buying stories of kings spending that much time and money due to their love for a single person. Indian kings were much more bloody and ruthless and power hungry than that even if making them love lorn heroes is much more interesting. But coming back to Ambapali, Buddha is supposed to have given her a discourse on dhamma after which she invited him to have dinner with her. A group of young aristocrats were also leaving the grove at the time and in a delightful and all too rare flash of personality from ancient India Ambapali has her charioteer race these snobs so their axle to axle the noble brats are angry because this courtesan ostensibly lower than them dares to speed like they do Ambapali why do you drive up against us like that <laughs> because 
young sirs the blessed lord will dine at my house with his order of monks ambapali give us this honor for 100000 gold pieces young sirs even if you were to give me all of vaishali and all its revenues i'd never give up on such an important meal ah we've been cheated by this mango woman we've been beaten by this mango woman this tells us with dreadful clarity that to the elites of the gangetic plains irrespective of their actual beliefs to be a patron of the buddha and the sangha had already become a matter of prestige to compete over that's very important and we'll come back to it in later episodes now magadha is rising the sangha is beginning to split apart the buddha is trying to spread his word as far as he can in a desperate race against time but nobody wins that particular race you run and you run to catch up with the sun but it's sinking racing around to come up behind you again the sun is the same in a relative way but you're older shorter of breath and one day closer to death at pava buddha dined at the home of chanda the smith eating a dish called the pig's delight but it turned out that the pork was spoiled and buddha had bloody diarrhea and terrible pains and so he came to the outskirts of kushinara kushinagara city of joy and came to the outskirts of the sal grove where we saw him at the beginning of the episode as with everything in the mahaparinibbana sutta the depiction of buddha's death is a curious mix of fact myth and later invention For example, Buddha is supposed to have seen thousands of gods gathering to witness his death. The sal trees under which he lies burst into blossom apparently. But he also does some very human things. He continues teaching almost till his end, giving a lecture to a wanderer called Subhadda. He orders that his charioteer from his princely days, now a monk called Channa, is to be ignored by the monks, probably to ensure that he doesn't let fame get to his head. He praises his dear cousin and companion Ananda and says he will achieve enlightenment soon. But the Mahaparinibbana Sutta also contains some very very interesting verses that profoundly shaped the legacy of Siddhartha Gautama. Do you remember our dialogue with him in the last episode when we asked him about his connections to the wealthy and powerful and his supposed visitations from the gods? In our dialogue with him Buddha never really confirmed whether he actually said that. or whether his disciples made it up to keep the sangha in line with the general beliefs of the times so that's how we should interpret the following lines from the mahaparinibbana sutta we'll never know if buddha himself said them or whether they're later invention but they'll be extremely important to us in future episodes of echoes lord monks who spent the rains in various places used to come and see you and we used to welcome them so that they could see you and pay their respects but whom will they come and see after you have passed my lord ananda there are four places which will arouse emotions in the faithful which are they here the buddha was born is the first here the buddha achieved supreme enlightenment is the second Here the Buddha set in motion the wheel of the Dhamma is the third. 
Here the Buddha achieved the great nibbana without remainder. Is the fourth. And Ananda, the faithful monks and nuns, male and female lay followers, they will visit those places. And any who die while making the pilgrimage to these shrines with a devout heart will, at the breaking up of the body after death, be reborn in a heavenly world. Lord, how should we act towards women? Do not see them, Ananda. But if we see them, how should we behave, Lord? Do not speak to them, Ananda. But if they speak to us, Lord, how should we behave? Practice mindfulness, Ananda. Lord, what shall we do with your remains? Do not worry yourself about the funeral arrangements, Ananda. You should strive for the highest goal and dwell with your minds zealously on the highest goal. The wise Kshatriyas, Brahmanas and householders who are devoted to me, they will take care of the funeral. But, Lord, what are we to do with your remains? Ananda, deal with them like the remains of a Chakravarti, a wheel-turning monarch. Wrap my remains in a new linen cloth. Wrap that in teased cotton wool and that in a new cloth. Do this 500 times each. Then enclose that in an oil vat of iron covered with another iron pot. Make a funeral pyre of all manners of perfumes. Cremate the body and raise a stupa at a crossroads over the ashes. And whoever lays wreaths or puts sweet perfumes and colors there with a devout heart will reap benefits and happiness for a long time. And so we find ourselves here watching the Buddha's funeral pyre as a crowd of thousands waits. Pilgrimage to sacred sites associated with his life, the erasure of women, the erection of stupas over sacred remains. Did Buddha really demand all this? Or was it what he became when he was dead and gone? When his legacy was taken over by those with a sharper understanding of politics and the minds of their followers? From this point, the historical Buddha begins to fade and Buddha, the legend, takes over. The body is beginning to rot. The funeral was delayed because a major Buddhist elder, Mahakasapa, had yet to arrive. Already this man stands with a following of hundreds of monks behind him, his austere wrinkled face still and composed. Under his hairy eyebrows, his eyes glow with fulfilled ambition. He contemptuously watches Ananda, who is broken with sorrow, surrounded only by a few senior monks. Just a few hours ago, Mahakasapa and his group had arrived and tussled with Ananda, claiming that he had defiled the Buddha's body by allowing women to touch him on the funeral pyre. Ananda had been unable to say anything. Politics have already begun to erupt within the Sangha.
Now Mahakasapa arranges his robe over one shoulder and steps forward. The crowd holds its breath as he circles the Buddha's body thrice and then unwraps his feet and touches his head to them. He, not Ananda, lights the pyre. Skin burns, flesh burns, sinew crumbles, blood evaporates. All that remains are cracked bones and ash. The man once known as Siddhartha Gautama is gone from this world. Perfumed water is poured over the embers of his corpse. His remains are gathered and taken to the assembly hall of the Malla oligarchs of Kushinara, and they surround it with a latticework of spears and bows, and for a week they dance, sing, and garland it. A message arrives from King Ajata Shattu of Magadha. The Lord was a Kshatriya, and I am a Kshatriya. I am worthy to receive a share of his remains. I will make a great stupa from them. His rivals, the Lichavis of the Vajji Confederacy, immediately make their own demand, as do the Shakyas, Siddhartha Gautama's clan, and the Bulayas of Allakappa, the Kolyas of Ramagama, the Brahmins of Etadipa, and the Mallas of Pava. The Mallas of Kushinara refuse them all. After much negotiation, the relics are finally divided into eight portions. Eight great stupas were erected by these kingdoms of the Gangetic Plains over the remains of this remarkable person. They were the first, but they would not be the last. For centuries after, rulers like Ajatashatu would claim and redistribute these remains to the point where we no longer know exactly where those original stupas were. We'll meet one of these rulers in the last couple of episodes of this season. A man who casts a long shadow over us all the way to the present. His name will be Ashoka Maurya. Buddha might be dead, but I am very much alive and thriving, and I'd like to stay that way, ideally with your help. Get a monthly subscription to my work on buymeacoffee.com slash akanisetti, that's A-K-A-N-I-C-T-T-I, by clicking the link in the description of this podcast. You'll be helping me create some of the most critical, well-researched, and accessible South Asian history content on the web. Plus, you get exclusive access to all the interesting stuff I'm up to. I know you'll help out, because you're awesome. And while you're at it, why don't you help support the IVM Podcast Network as well? Check out Echoes of India, Yuddha, and a whole host of other interesting podcasts on the IVM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts.